Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we're happy to welcome back to the program Concord Coalition co-chairs Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth. The two former United States senators will discuss their recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal titled, How Long Can America Keep Borrowing? We'll also discuss their thoughts on changes in the Senate, such as the filibuster or the intriguing potential of forming a centrist caucus. So let's uh, jump right into the conversation. By way of uh, introduction, Bob Kerry is a Medal of Honor recipient. He is a former governor of Nebraska and two-term United States Senate Senator from Nebraska. Um, he also was a member of the 9-11 Commission and he was president of the New School in, uh, in New York and is currently managing director with Allen and Company. Uh, Senator Jack Danforth uh, was attorney general of the state of Missouri and uh, before he went to the Senate and then he served three terms from Missouri in the United States Senate. Uh, following his term in the Senate, he among other things served as UN ambassador and now is a partner at the uh, law firm of Dowd and Bennett uh, in St. Louis. So before we get to the, uh, the questions, I'm going to just, I thought it'd be good to give you a little bit of a, a sense of the uh, op-ed, what, uh, what, what you wrote in the, uh, uh, in the uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, so let me just read a, a little bit of this. Um, you wrote, current figures suggest that the federal government is digging America into a hole. According to CBO's baseline projections, which don't count for Mr. Biden's proposals, interest costs will surpass spending for Social Security by 2045 and will consume nearly half of federal revenue by 2051. Despite the urgency of the problem, nearly every elected official in Washington is an original co-sponsor of the Do Nothing Plan. While today's hyperpartisan political environment makes it unlikely that our fiscal crisis will be resolved anytime soon, elected officials would do well to take at least some action to address the issue. It's become all too clear that America can't build a sound economy on a foundation of unsustainable debt. The longer lawmakers wait to act, the more difficult the solutions will be and the greater the risks for future generations. And, uh, you know, 
the two of you have been working on this for a long time. Uh, President Clinton appointed you to co-chair a bipartisan commission on entitlement and tax reform back in 1994. And, you know, rather remarkably, uh, I thought the commission reached almost unanimous agreement on the uh, on some principles that uh, on, on the scope of the challenge. Let's just put it that way, that that Medicare and Social Security were both on unsustainable track and we, you know, they were consuming the rest of the budget and we had to do a better job of investing, saving and investing for the future. Uh, the problem broke down around, um, you know, finding consensus solutions. Uh, and we seem to still be there, uh, you know, maybe better able to define the problem than, uh, than we are at, uh, at finding solutions. But let's, uh, let's talk now. Let's, let's bring Senators Kerry and Danforth into the conversation to talk about uh, the uh, the op-ed and and first let me just ask why did you feel it was important to write this op-ed uh, at at this time? Okay, Bob Terry, you start. Well, you know it's it's startling that um, I don't know I can't actually name a single um, member of Congress even though we we praise the proposal that. Uh, Joe Manchin and and uh, and others have, have put forward to try to create some mechanism whereby we can at least face the facts of the debt. He and Mitt Romney and the in the Senate, um, uh, it's it's the, the numbers are just so compellingly large and getting larger. Just the, just the borrowing to fund current expenditures, let alone the growth of the three big entitlement programs and their unfunded uh, cost over the future. It's just it's stunning to me that um, that it isn't being addressed because if just take the easiest of the, of the big programs, Social Security, uh, it, it enjoys strong intergenerational support at the moment. I'm not I'm not so sure it should, because if you're under the age of 50 and in the workforce, uh, as you've heard me say before, Bob, the, the do nothing plan, which is supported by 535 members of Congress is going to impose a substantial cut on your benefits or and or a big increase in taxes on your kids. So doing nothing eventually uh, increases the size of the problem. It doesn't get smaller, it gets larger. Um, so uh, that was my motivation for writing it. The problem has gotten worse, not better, since Jack and I did that commission back in 94. Well, I think the big change since 1994 is that then people, a lot of people really cared about the problem, including President Clinton who appointed the commission, certainly including Bob and me, but including the 30 plus members of the commission who focused on back then, 27 years ago, what was going on with regard to the entitlement program we couldn't come up with any kind of consensus as to a program because um, finding solutions is really politically difficult, impossible maybe, but at least people recognize that we had a huge problem just with the entitlement programs. So now we continue to have the same problem with the same program programs plus, all kinds of ideas for yet 
new entitlement programs and apparently zero interest in the national debt. I mean, zero. I, you don't hear any other than from the Concord Coalition. You hear nothing about the national debt. Both parties merrily going on um, with huge deficits year after year. The idea that you can have all these benefits from the government and you don't have to pay for the benefits. So that's really good news. And that's popular stuff. I mean, how is, you wonder about the politics of the situation when a politician says, look, I'm going to give you money and I'm going to pay for a lot of stuff and you don't have to come up with a penny. That is good news. I mean, sure, send it in. So that this is a problem that has gotten, it's, it's, it's grown substantially and there is no known concern for it. And I think that sense of urgency and that somebody at least should be trying something was the motivation for the op-ed. Yeah, I just uh, go back to that commission that you co-chaired in, in 94, 95 and look at, uh, it was really pretty, pretty impressive that there were seven findings from that commission that had near unanimous support among the commission members. I think it was like 31 out of 32 of the commission members. And, 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 you know, the thing is that uh, all of the seven findings are still true today, unfortunately, but they had to do with, you know, social security and Medicare were both on an unsustainable track and discretionary spending would get squeezed and, um, and healthcare costs were a problem. I mean, these are some of the things, and we haven't solved those problems. And and yet there are, as, as Jack was saying, there's not a whole lot of sensitivity to new proposals that could could make the problem worse. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not sort of existentially against debt, uh, but the question is, um, how do I pay it back? At some point, you either have to pay it back or you got to get, get it to a point where it isn't growing because there's no question uh, that the Federal Reserve can't keep interest rate as low as they've, they've done. Uh, you know, since 2008 and 2009, eventually you're going to get an interest rate adjustment. Um, and you're at least going to have to pay your bondholders for the interest on the debt that, that we're accumulating. And as Jack's saying, one of the most troubling things is you'll hear, hear people say, well, I want my college to be free. I want my health care to be free. I want my childcare to be free. I want my, I want everything to be free. Well, it isn't free. Uh, I've got to tax one group of people and transfer it to somebody else. Or there appears to Bob be a disturbing bipartisan consensus that you know who cares about a little bit of more debt. Um, you know, there's there anybody that suggests that uh, borrowing money uh, can be a problem because you got to pay it back is seen like a couple of grumpy old farts like Jack and me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think also, you know, I mean, a lot, a lot of, well, first of all, there's almost no, there's zero pushback on all this. So really zero, zero (laughs) concerned about it. The little commentary you hear about the national debt and about deficits has to do with um, interest rates and what that will do to the economy. But even I think more central than, than what it does to the economy, 
what's it doing to the relationship between the government and the American people? I mean, our expectations now are that government is going to do more and more and more and take over more and more responsibilities that historically people have, have taken for themselves and that that's the role of government. And if that's the perception, it, it's a major change in the relationship between the federal government and the people. It's a major shift of responsibility. And it's, um, it's really a big deal. And I think there's been almost zero commentary on that. Well, you remember, uh, uh, Jack, I mean, I didn't hear him say it, but uh, Everett Dirksen was supposed to have said, you know, a billion here and a billion here and there, and eventually it adds up to real money. Now it's a trillion. Right. Uh, you know, we've added, we've added three zeros. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether you, you saw the story, but there's some talk about a $6 trillion reconciliation bill <laughs> uh, coming up this summer. I have no idea where that's going to end up, but there are some negotiations going on on the Hill. And I think Tori had a question for you about um, the nature of those negotiations. Sure. I, I mean, both parties have established some pretty significant red lines over policy, especially when it comes to offsets or pay force, um, even on things like infrastructure that are supposed to enjoy broad bipartisan support, and which I think many could argue we, we need, depending upon how you define infrastructure. There's no doubt that our roads and bridges are crumbling and we need to do something. And my question is, is are there simply too many red lines to hope that any kind of bipartisan legislation is possible. And, you know, I was thinking back as, as the gentleman here you were, you were discussing, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to Kerry Danforth, Simpson Bowles, and all of these commissions that were designed to put together, you know, these offset packages to help pay for all of these things, these investments that we want, that we want to make. And I was thinking about the last time that I can remember that Congress actually did something to raise revenue was Balanced Budget Act of 1997 where they actually raised revenue to help uh, pay for, for spending and, and, and reduce our debt and deficits. Is, has it really been that long? Has that pervasive attitude and this, this, this uh, rejection of, of, of offsets and, and pay-fors and having the difficult discussion with Americans and, and with voters about, hey, we need to pay for the services that we demand for government. Um, is it really that hard and is it really that impossible at this point to, to think and to hope that there might be a bipartisan solution? Yeah, so just take the easiest one of all, Social Security. Uh, I mean, to, to, to reestablish the intergenerational promise, that is to say 75 years of, of solvency. And I'll repeat it, it's, it's not just for my generation, it's for my children and, and my grandchildren. It's, it's supposed to be intergenerationally sound, and it isn't. Uh, and it's relatively easy when you look at the numbers to figure out what to do. You're gonna to have to reduce the size of the benefit or you gotta increase the amount of revenue. And it, when you look at it, it looks relatively trivial, but there's bipartisan agreement that we're not gonna to touch social security any longer. Uh, I mean, it's like, okay, and, and I know why, I mean, I, you know, the joke is, it's not much of a joke that there's two kinds of people in Washington, those who can count and those who lose. And everybody's, <laughs> they presume that if you're over 65, you're not patriotic. Uh, and so they're, they're sort of bipartisan pandering to people over the age of 65 saying we don't need to do anything. And to which I would say, think about, think about 
your working your uh, son and daughter in the workforce. Think about your grandson or granddaughter in the workforce right now. They're paying taxes to support you. But when they become eligible for this program, just look at current law. Do you support cutting their benefits by 30%? Do you support raising their taxes by a comparable amount? Because unless you do, uh, unless you say yes to those two things, um, you know, it's, it, 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 it seems to me you're just not being honest with yourself. So part it's, of the problem is, as Jack said, it's very easy to vote for something that you don't have to ask anybody to pay for it right now. It's going to get paid for down the road. Is this an issue of, of lawmakers that won't lead or voters that won't give lawmakers the space that they need to have these difficult conversations with the voters and explain things in something beyond, you know, 150 word tweets? Well, I think it's a both and. And, and um, I mean, one thing that it, it, it existed 27 years ago and exists today is that even adjusting programs and adjusting the taxes that pay for the programs for inflation, just making them in real dollars neutral, but in inflation dollars adjusting them, even that is viewed as either a cut in benefits oh. or an increase in taxes. So you're hearing it now with regard to proposals to adjust the gasoline tax just for inflation. It's not a real increase in the tax at all, but it's viewed by the president as being off the table because it, even nominally, it's an increase in taxes for people who have incomes of under $400,000. So in both sides, both Republicans, Democrats, from the benefit side, from the tax side, there's these are red lines and even not real adjustments, but only inflation relation related adjustments are seen as being um, stepping over red lines. Uh, Bob, I, I know you've, uh, you, I can see you really want to make a point here, a follow up to uh, Jack's comment, uh, but we have to take a break uh, just for a second. Uh, this is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, your host. I'm talking to former Senators Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth, co-chairs of the Concord Coalition, about their new op-ed in the uh, Washington, uh, excuse me, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and uh, reflections about what's going on now in the United States Senate. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, your host, and Tori Gorman is here with me. And we're talking to the Concord Coalition co-chairman, former senators Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth. And Bob, when we were, took a break, you were uh, trying desperately to make a point. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I was trying. Not, not, you haven't seen me desperately trying to do something. <laughs> I wasn't desperate, but I, I was trying to make a point. I mean, rather than facing the future for a moment, I'll face the past. Uh, I remember writing a, a letter, Jack, in 1986, supporting. I was governor at the time. Uh, what uh, the Republicans in the, in the Senate were proposing, which was to freeze the COLA for a, for a single year, I believe it's accurate to say you lost the Senate as a consequence of that. So it was unpopular even then. Is, is that, am I, am I recollecting it correctly? What, didn't, wasn't there a, a COLA freeze that yeah, passed yeah. the Senate think, and then it didn't pass the yeah. House? And, yeah. I think that's right. And yeah, and it was... I mean, that really was, it, it was the third rail of politics because he, I, I came very close to losing my reelection in 1982 on just this issue. It was on COLA adjustments. 
And I said, you, we've got to be more reasonable in the COLA adjustments because now they're, they don't accurately measure real changes. And for that, commercials were run against me. Danforth wants to cut Social Security. That's the way that it was put. And, you know, and they say Danforth voted to cut Social Security X number of times. And how do you respond to that? You know, because that's about a 10 second charge and you, it would take maybe a half an hour to explain just what I was trying to do. But uh, no, politically, it, it, was, um, it was almost a killer for me. And that was way back in 1982. You know, I worry. Yeah, uh, and, I, and I think it's, it, it's gotten easier, Bob. Also, the other thing I'd add is that, let me put it this way. Um, if, if I really want my 19-year-old son to realize how old I am, I'll tell him that that I was born before Google, and <laughs> and because he thinks that he thinks uh, that Alexander Hamilton used Google to write the Federalist Papers, so, uh, and this came out in 2006. So there has there there are lots of things going on that make it more likely uh, that. Uh, somebody trying to defeat a Jack Danforth can use uh, something like this. Uh, and, 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 Troy, what you're asking about is part of the problem is there's so much the public needs to learn about these programs. They still think it's a, it's a fully funded trust program. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they still think it's, that's, they're just getting money back that they paid in. They still think that that normal retirement age means they have to retire. We eliminated that in the 1990s. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I don't know if I want to say ignorance or misunderstanding of what the programs themselves are that makes it very, very easy uh, to go after, particularly a senator uh, that might be lucky if they win by six or seven points. Uh, with six or seven point margin, uh, and if you, if all you have to do is persuade about 10% of people over the age of 65 in your state that, that you're going to be bad for them, that you're going to make them forge in the alley for food if you make any adjustments and you're going to lose. So it, I think you're, it, it, that, that is part of the problem. The, the, the public needs and they, 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 they occasionally get it, but they're not getting much leadership right now. That's why I come back to what Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin are proposing, because I think it's a good solution. At least it allows the public to have a rational debate led by their elected representatives on the size of the problem. What is it? What's going on here? Yeah, and that's the uh, the Trust Act, which has does have bipartisan support from in both the House and the Senate, and and it would break the problem down into looking at the individual trust funds for Social Security, Medicare, and highways, and each would get a special commission made up of members of Congress, split evenly between uh, you know each party, and uh, and they would try to take a shot at coming up with a solution, and if they agreed on something, it would get expedited consideration on the House and Senate floor. And sure, it wouldn't solve the whole problem, even if they did it, but it sure as heck would help. <laughs> and it would address the things that have an immediate deadline uh, rather than the, the long-term debt itself, which just goes on uh, in an unsustainable way forever. So it, yeah, I mean, the trust act seems to make a lot of sense. You know, one, and that sort of leads me to um, something else I wanted to ask about, which is you see some there are groups that work together, uh, gangs, so-called gangs uh, bubble up in the Senate. Uh, now, back earlier this year, there was one that were late last year. 
that was really quite influential in doing a COVID relief bill. That was this was the one from December, not the, the bigger one that came later. But they they got together in a bipartisan way, and you're seeing some of that happening with infrastructure now. Uh, there's a, about 21, I think 11 Republicans and 10 Democrats who are coalescing around a plan. Just I wanted to get your sense of: Do you think this is a highly partisan atmosphere, 50-50 split? Do you think it's plausible or desirable to have like a centrist caucus that, you yes, know? Yes, certainly desirable. Um, I mean, both politicians, elected politicians in, in each party <clears throat> will be under extreme pressure from the base of that party. And that's what's happened. The, the bases have become the polls. The polls have gravitated everybody toward those polls. And so um, it, it, it's, we, we have become polarized. The center has been pretty much cut out of American politics today. But the idea of putting together a coalition of people in the Senate, let's start with the Senate, a coalition of people, it wouldn't have to be a lot of them could be maybe six, eight, 10, 12 people equally yeah. divided between Republicans and Democrats who would then set themselves up as a block within the Senate. So if anybody on either side wants to do anything, they have to do business with this swing block of senators. And it, it is the most hopeful prospect you know, Bob and I had this commission back 27 years ago. Commissions are better than nothing because they do at least call attention to a problem. But the ultimate coalition, uh, uh, commission rather, <clears throat> is members of Congress. I mean, that's really the commission that we vote for. So how do you create a, a, a workable a workable Senate or a workable House. And I think the idea of creating some sort of centrist block, bipartisan block, is the most promising thing to do. I, I completely agree with that, Jack. I, I would, as a companion to it, uh, and I chaired the, uh, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, so I've got experience with it. But that's just from the, you know, the early 80s on. That's part of the, I, I would eliminate all four of those committees. So you have a, a Republican and a Democratic committee in the House and, and, and another one in the Senate. Uh, so you get these four committees. And what's, what's happened is the power has shifted from the committees over to the leadership office. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a, there was a time, I, I, I know well, when I first got to the Senate, if you wanted to move a tax bill, it had to go through the Finance Committee. Yeah. There's no way, or it had, it's, it, and, and no longer. They'll originally they'll start a tax bill right in the leadership office. So I would eliminate all four of those committees. Plus, it's not easy to get somebody of the other party to work for you when you've got this committee out raising money to defeat the person you're working with. It does tend to create a little bit of distrust. So I like the idea of a of an independent a group of people who who caucus. They can still be Republicans or Democrats, uh, but they're not going to be penalized if they participate. And right now, they risk being penalized by the leadership of their own parties. Mm -hmm. So this brings a, a different question to mind, the sort of the flip side of the same coin. And I think I, 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 
I can anticipate your answers, given the fact that two former senators sitting well, in front of me. Cut, cut the time down, Joy. Just give us the answer, and then we'll, we'll guess the question. <laughs> should the should the Senate <laughs> Democrats reform the filibuster? Say it again. Should the Senate Democrats reform the filibuster in order to get policy through? Should they, if they can't find a middle, if there is no responsible middle, should they reform the filibuster to get their policies through? Well, I, I think no. I mean, right from the beginning of our country, I mean, this is James Madison, right? I mean, his, his big concern was the tyranny of the majority. So the idea wasn't just you get a majority and you ram through whatever you want. The idea is how do you have input and checks and balances so that nobody sort of runs roughshod, roughshod over everybody else. Now, I'm not sure I understood what Bob was saying about committees. I, I do believe that right now, the committee, and I was on the finance committee for 18 years. I do believe that the committee system has been undercut now, and maybe there have been exceptions to it, but by and large, legislation has not gone through committees. It has not been subject to input from all sides. It has not been uh, subjected to the possibility of amendments within the committees or amendments on the floor. It's simply written by the White House and by the leadership in the Senate, and that's a big loss. So restoring what we call the regular order, namely how does a bill become a law? Well, it goes to committees, goes to floor amendments, amendments, and so on. That really doesn't exist anymore. And I think it would be a big deal to try to restore the regular order. And if you could uh, hold that thought just for a second. Uh... We need to uh, just take a, a, a quick break. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby, your host, and I'm talking with former United States Senators Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth. They are the co-chairs of the Concord Coalition, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Well, what I'm talking about is uh, sometime in the 70s, and it was probably a, not a bad idea in the beginning, but like lots of ideas that aren't so bad in the beginning, they become, you know, like the little shop of horrors. The plant just keeps getting bigger and eventually it eats you. And I think the Democratic Senatorial Campaign and the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, my guess is they're half of the funding of, of every single campaign in the, the, yeah, in the okay. Senate, particularly the Senate. And so what, and the person who is primarily raising that money is the majority of the minority leader. Uh, yeah. And so what happens is the power then shifts uh, to the to the leadership office away from the committee. Yeah. That's what I'm okay. talking about. I, 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 I yeah. misunderstood you. I thought you were talking about the standing committees, but no, okay, yeah. No, yeah, I'm talking Got about it. the fundraising committees. And I look, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, I would love to get back to regular order where if you want to filibuster, I don't mind somebody filibustering. Although point out that Madison, when he wrote Article One, he said the Congress can write its own rules. That's that. I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I may have been a mistake. Uh, regardless, uh, uh, you should have to go to the floor and carry the debate forward, and you don't have to now. Now I have to get 60 votes in order to proceed on everything, procedural things. I have to get 60 votes to pr proceed, which is I don't think a, I don't think that that even Madison, who didn't, who thought that they, I agree with it, was a, was a concern about the tyranny of, of, of the majority, 
I, I think he'd probably I think he'd probably be appalled appalled. He's dead, so I can't he can't contradict what I'm saying, but uh, I do think it'd be appalled by the way the filibuster is currently being used. Well, it's clearly been misused. Um, but I think if you had a bipartisan group and not just on budget issues, but if there could be a, a group in, let's say just the Senate, which is what you and I have experience in, if there would be a group of, let's say six or eight, equally divided Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, and they would be committed simply to making the institution work. That's their commitment. Yeah. And that means that everybody's got a, the, it means the regular order is restored. It means everybody's got a fair chance to offer amendments. It means that the group as a, as a block would vote for cloture if it was simply used to block everything rather than providing a fair chance, that would be very, that would really be a big deal if that was done. Now, it would be strongly opposed by the leadership in both parties. I mean, the leadership in both parties like the situation as it exists right now. They like it, they like being able to call every shot. But if you had such a group that was simply committed to making the Senate work and as hanging together as a block, it'd be a very, very big thing. And Jack just said something uh, typically very important, which is this is a rule change, Bob. If, there, if, if Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell agreed to write a rule that created, let's say a group of eight or 10 or whatever, and the number, doesn't, Jack's right, doesn't have to be very big. Uh, and so citizen listening to this radio broadcast torturing themselves listening to us talking about this uh, and they're trying to figure out what to do this is something you can do uh, if you're supporting democrats ask them uh, to tell their leader you support this change and, and you know it, it could it could get pushed on the national agenda um, it's not sufficiently insulting to to be very hot on twitter but it's still nonetheless um, if, if citizens are looking for a way to improve the quality of the effort in Congress, this is a really good one to push for. Well, I think the more that uh, things get bottled up and nothing happens and the more, <clears throat> you know, you just get this partisan warfare back and forth with people repeating talking points and not really, uh, I mean, if some, one side comes out with a proposal, then the other side immediately, and I'm talking about the leadership here, uh, immediately opposes it and, and it just gets very frustrating. Uh, so the efforts of the groups in the middle, uh, at least they're talking to each well, other. And, Bob, and, Bob, let me be clear. I, I think democracy should be frustrating. I, I mean, a little bit of frustration isn't so bad. Uh, you know, uh, so I don't mind. Somebody says, well, I'm frustrated with Congress. It's well, welcome to democracy. But what we're tra talking about is a rule change, a very specific rule change that makes it more likely that things that right now that don't get done because uh, because not just the partisan difference, because of polarization, would get done. I mean, you could, I could pull 10 people off the street right now that would write a comprehensive immigration act. Um, I can pull 10 pe people off the street and show them the amount of debt that we're accumulating, the problem with Social Security and Medicare, and they tell you what ought to be done. So this is not like we're trying to find a cure for cancer here. These are common sense things that would improve the quality of the work. It's not gonna eliminate uh, uh, frustration. It's not gonna make democracy easy. Uh, democracy isn't easy. 
Yeah, no, it's just it, uh, it, 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 it releases them to address the problem. <laughs> and it's then a the, solution. Uh, it's yeah. the precise solution to a problem. I don't think it would take a rule change. I think it would take I think it would take a group of six or eight committed members of the Senate who just decided, okay, we're going to be committed to making the Senate work. And we're going to vote as a block to make it work. And that would, this would be a big, wouldn't take a rule change. They would be, they would position themselves as the swing votes. Now they would have to but, stick together and they would be under enormous pressure to go off be, individually. They would have to agree that they were going to stick together as a block. But uh, that would be, it would be possible. It would take, you know, it would take a half a dozen or more brave souls to pull it off, but it could be pulled off. Well, so that's, a, that's a specific thing that listeners can ask for. And that's a, um, and uh, then, and then make sure if you're a Republican, you support the Republican is doing it, and if you're a Democrat, you support the Democrat is doing it, and you don't complain because they're doing something that isn't isn't pure or whatever else it is that you're holding fast to. Because if they get punished at the polls, if the Republican loses the next time they have a primary, if the Democrat loses the next time they have a primary, you know, don't blame them. Uh, we, you know, in the end. Congress can't be any better than we are. So part of the problem right now is there, that, that the country is polarized. So it's gonna take brave voters as well to stand up in their community and say, we're gonna support this. Well, Senator Kerry, I think you've touched on a really important point in that there is all this campaign infrastructure to support the parties on both ends, but there isn't any kind of campaign infrastructure to support the, the, the middle, the moderates, the centrists. And I'm wondering if we just need to reduplicate that infrastructure. I mean, you look in the House, the House has the Republican study group as well. That's got, you know, they, the members pay dues and that dues pays for staff, which pays for talking points, research, issue papers, et cetera. Um, you've got the campaign committees in both chambers and both parties. I'm wondering if what we need to do is fight back with the same weapons and create these these the, the, the same sort of infrastructure, but for our centrists and our problem solvers. That's probably true of the politics committee, but I, I'm I'm hard over for abolishing the, the fundraising committees. I think they've real I think they've really uh, you know produced a deterioration of the quality of effort. Um, I don't even know no, how no. much they raise, but it's got to be hundreds of millions of dollars that they raise every election cycle for Senate and House candidates on both the Republican and Democratic side. It's just it's it's a it's an act of corruption. It should end. Troy, um... I I think the idea of creating some sort of centrist infrastructure would be terrific if you could figure it out. Um, that really the, the political center doesn't exist anymore. And how to rebuild it, I don't know. I mean, because each party has the infrastructure and now the, the parties have become polarized. So what to do to recreate the middle? I, I, I really don't know but it's certainly worth thinking about. Troy, before we go, um, remember the, uh, the Colby Stenholm pledge? Um, I was just gonna mention, we called it the get out of jail free caucus. Yeah, so. why don't you describe that, just to, <laughs> the, uh, how that worked. So I worked in the house for Jim, Congressman Jim Colby, Republican from Tucson, Arizona back in the late nineties. And a friend of mine, Ed Lorenzen uh, worked for um, Charlie Stenholm who was a Democrat from Abilene, Texas. And they both piled together 
uh, on a social security reform bill uh, with some senators. Um, and they had this agreement in the House and we created this get out of jail free caucus. And these were all of our co-sponsors with our House legislation to reform social security. And the idea was when one member of our caucus was attacked, then members of the opposing party would write letters to the editor to the local papers in support of the member who was being attacked. So um, uh, Jim Colby got attacked and wrote a letter and uh, Charlie Stenholm wrote a letter for Jim Colby and then the reverse happened um, in, in election cycles. So we had these letters to the editor that were, and, and that were, you know, crisscrossing the, the nation in support of all of our members. I think Nick Smith wrote one on behalf of Charlie Stenholm in another election. And that's, uh, it, was a, it was a get out of jail free caucus and we promised to help uh, one another. Um, and it, it worked really well. I mean, it, it, the leadership hated it and I got in trouble, but you know, Jim and well, Charlie didn't get in trouble. So. I, think that, uh, I think that, see, it didn't hurt your career. Now you're policy director of the Concord Coalition. So, <laughs> <laughs> so on that hopeful note that, if politicians uh, can band together and then agree to let each other out of jail, if they if they're so bold as to try to solve problems, uh, maybe we can maybe we can accomplish something. So I want to thank uh, Bob Kerry and Jack Danforth, the Concord Coalition co-chairs, and Polly uh, Polly Tory Corman, our policy director, uh, for joining us for Thanks, a. A very interesting conversation this afternoon, which started with uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Senators Kerry and Danforth, and ended with some very interesting proposals for uh, for the Senate um, and problem solving. Uh, thank you all for joining me, and uh, I will be back next week with another episode of Facing the Future. Thank you.